There is a lot not to like about that parable we just heard read. I mean, a lot. And my first instinct on coming back to it this past week was to say, this cannot in any way be about Jesus. No way. Zero zip. I mean, just look at the character at the center of this story. A wealthy landowner in charge of a number of slaves. Jesus was a poor, traveling teacher and healer with no place to lay his head, according to the Gospel of Luke. He was a man who owned little and who certainly coerced no one. The landowner seems to care about one thing above all else, profit. Jesus, on the other hand, spoke incessantly about the dangers of wealth and its insidious ability to interfere with what is most important in our lives, our devotion to God and our love for our neighbors. The landowner treats those around him as expendable, as even disposable if they're not useful to him in that one goal of his of making money. Jesus began his ministry by declaring the poor in spirit, the meek, the merciful, the peacemakers to be blessed, not the rich, the shrewd, or the successful. And the parable itself seems to lift up a vision of society where the gulf between the haves and the have-nots only widens, where to all who have more will be given, and from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. Jesus confronted precisely those sorts of divisions, challenging the wealthy to give up their abundance for the sake of the poor, and lifting up those in need, reminding them of their dignity and their inestimable worth in the eyes of God. Nothing in this parable looks or sounds like Jesus to me. No way. Zero zip. So at the start of the week, I was beginning to explore other possibilities here, ways that this parable could be about something or someone else entirely, about abusive social and economic practices, about protest, about opting out of injustice. There is a problem with that, though. Matthew has Jesus speaking this parable in the midst of a whole set of teachings about the need for watchfulness and the return of the Son of Man. I may be leaving soon, Jesus tells his followers in this section of the gospel, but I will return. And it's going to be like the days of Noah, where people were happily going about their business, and then one day the rain started to pour. The return of the Son of Man will be like that, a surprise that nobody saw coming, an event that demands a reckoning. Immediately before our reading today, Jesus tells a couple short parables, one about two slaves left in charge of their master's household while he's away, and one about ten bridesmaids waiting for the groom to arrive. There's stories about waiting, about uncertainty, about preparedness in the meantime, and about an upcoming arrival that's going to shake everything up. That's the context for our parable today. I want this ugly story to have nothing to do with Jesus, but it's pretty clear that Matthew thinks it does have something to do with him and with the in-between time that his followers have now found themselves in for 2,000 years, the time between his resurrection and his promised return. 
The parable is where it is in the gospel, in Jesus' final set of teachings before his betrayal and death, in the midst of a number of other parables about his coming again to judge the living and the dead for a reason. So, here we are. Let's dig in and see what else we can find. I've already given you a bunch of ways in which the landowner looks nothing like Jesus to me. His status, his greed, his ruthless pursuit of power and profit, his participation in a system that further polarizes an already divided society. There is, however, one way in which he does bear a resemblance to Jesus, and it's that journey that he takes. The story begins with this premise that the landowner is leaving his home for an indefinite and long period of time. And that is certainly the situation in which Jesus' followers were just about to find themselves. We're at the very end of the gospel, remember. Their teacher and friend was just about to be taken from them. And while he promised to return, the timetable to come was anything but certain. So we do have that one important similarity here, which leads us to an important detail that it's easy to overlook. Just what it is that's entrusted to those slaves while the master is away. Talents, says our translation, five, two, and one. You may know that's a misleading word for us in English. It sounds like the sort of thing that you would offer at a talent show, the ability to juggle or to play the oboe. But the talents spoken about here, talenta in Greek, are not special abilities at all. They are a concrete amount of money. The message translation of this passage gets at that. It says that the landowner left the slaves with five, two, and $1,000, respectively. That's a little closer, though we are still off on the amounts, way off. A single talent, just one of them, would have been roughly like 14 kilos of gold, something equivalent to 20 years of salary for a laborer. For somebody to leave his servants in charge of a few thousand dollars sounds strange and maybe a little bit reckless and risky, but for someone to leave his servants in charge of 20, 40, and 100 years of wages, the equivalent of the jackpot from the Lottery Swiss Roman, sounds absolutely absurd. It's a detail that a first century audience listening to Jesus' parable could not have missed. And that's important for us. There's nothing so unusual about a story of an absent landlord and what his servants did in his absence. That's sort of a useful motif for talking about ethics and behavior, how people behave when nobody's watching them. But the amount of wealth that we're talking about here so astronomically big, so out of the realm of normal human behavior, should grab our attention, and it should set us to wondering, why would the landowner leave this much in the care of his servants? Why would he take such a phenomenal risk? And if there is even a little bit of Jesus in this man heading out on a journey, what of such unimaginable wealth is being entrusted to his followers. Jesus can't be talking about the money in his disciples' pockets. None of them possessed this kind of wealth. 
And I can't believe he's talking about their individual abilities either. Peter's skill at repairing fishnets or Thaddeus's great singing voice. Those abilities are lovely and valuable, but we're not really in the league of decades worth of salaries here. So what is it? What could possibly be this precious? How about the word of life? The way of Jesus? The hope of the kingdom? How about the gospel itself? New Testament scholar Matt Skinner suggests that we view the three characters entrusted with the talents not as faithful or frightened individuals, but rather as churches, as communities of Jesus' followers, as expressions of Christian faith in the world. I don't know about you, but I find that really helpful because then it's clear that Jesus isn't trying to scare his individual followers into being personally generous here. He's trying to impress upon them the sheer magnitude of what's been entrusted to them together and just how high the stakes are. Listen up, church, Jesus says. You have one whopper of a precious gift in your collective hands. So what are you going to do with it? That's an important reminder for me in this tumultuous season that we're in right now. In a time with so much fear, the word that, God's hold, that God holds this world and each life in love is precious. In a time when so many feel, feel unmoored and unsure, the word that God is our dwelling place in all generations is precious. In a time when structures and systems and leaders continue to perpetuate injustice for those on the margins. The word that God envisions an upside-down world where all have a place is precious. In a time when walls are, come, are going up to keep strangers out, a path of mercy and generosity and compassion is precious. And in a time when many feel isolated and cut off from trusted sources of strength and support, the gift of a community to encourage and to build one another up is precious. The gift of the gospel entrusted to Jesus' followers and to us as a faith community is precious. And it's not to be hidden. I prefer a church which is bruised, hurting, and dirty because it's been out on the streets, Pope Francis said a few years back, rather than a church which is unhealthy from being confined and from clinging to its own security. That sounds like a pretty good summary of this parable to me. The church is meant to be doing something with the priceless grace entrusted to it, giving it away, unleashing it on the world, taking risks for the sake of others, not hiding in complacency or fear. The gospel means for us to show up together. So it is really sort of a bizarre coincidence that members of our congregation will be receiving pledge forms this coming week, asking you to think prayerfully about how you will support our common ministry in the coming year. We really didn't exactly think of lining this up when we put these dates together. And I certainly don't think this parable is saying that you had better offer your talents in music or hospitality or teaching and your money or else. 
But does it have something to do with all that we offer? Yes. It asks us to consider how seriously we take the message, the community, the offer of abundant life that have been entrusted to us. Do we recognize something of the immense value of it all? Are we each willing to stand up and be part of it? And are we willing to risk together to share that grace with a world that needs it? We don't know just what this coming year is going to look like. But we do know that together an immense gift has been entrusted to us, a grace of immeasurable value. Friends, let's show up together, ready to receive it, trusting that there is joy to be found in the sharing. Thanks be to God. Amen.